It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. When the first settlement on a planet circling another star, when the historians there are writing the books of their history, of how that came to be, my work on solar sails or other things that I've worked on in my professional career be at least a footnote in that history book. I won't see it in my lifetime, but I'm hoping one of my descendants will look back and say, yeah, that was my great, 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 great grandfather. That's Les Johnson. He's the author of the book, The Traveler's Guide to the Stars. He's also a NASA engineer who just a few weeks ago was holding his breath as NASA's giant new moon rocket was launched into space. That's because the rocket wasn't just carrying the Orion capsule set to circle the moon. Hitching a ride on the rocket was Les Johnson's shoebox-sized spacecraft that was rigged to spread its gossamer-thin wings and fly to an asteroid. Les hopes his little spacecraft is one small step toward a gigantic spaceship powered by solar sails that will one day take humans to the stars. But we began our conversation with the more modest mission of the tiny spacecraft called NEA Scout. I asked him what NEA Scout is short for. Near-Earth Asteroid Scout. We are a mission to go do some science at one of these asteroids that circles the sun in an orbit very similar to the Earth, so it's not out in the asteroid belt. Um, Hence, it's a near-Earth asteroid, and we're using a new type of space propulsion system to get there. Which is sails, right? You're going to sail to the asteroid. That's correct. Now, you're not going to get hit by wind. You're going to get hit by photons from the sun? Yeah, it's kind of unfortunate that it's called a solar sail because people often assume it has something to do with the solar wind, which is a totally different physical phenomena. And you, you got it correct. Um, the, a solar sail reflects sunlight to get propulsion. It's, it's a very, very low thrust system. It'll never get you out of a gravity well. We have to have rockets to get off the ground to get into space. Huh. But once you're in space, the sun's always shining. And if you can take advantage of that to offload the need for propellant, which is what a solar sail does, it's a, it's a spacecraft that doesn't require any more fuel after you get to space, 
you can go a long way uh, with a very small spacecraft and, and essentially not run out of gas. How close do you have to be to the sun to get enough push from the photons? The photons don't seem very powerful to me. Oh, they're not. Uh, and it's, it's interesting you say that. I work at a rocket center where we have people dealing with, with rocket engines that produce a million pounds of thrust. And uh, my, my spacecraft produces, you know, like thousands of a pound. <laughs> but it's constant. It's constant. Yeah. Uh, to, give, to give listeners an idea, um, sunlight, which is, of course, made of photons, these photons have momentum. And as they reflect from the sail, they push on it. But it's not much. If you were to go out in the middle of uh, two football fields, in the middle of the day, bright sunny sky, sun directly overhead, low humidity, and you were to measure the push from sun uh, from the sun on two football fields of area, it would it would be roughly the same as the force you feel on your hand if you're holding a quarter and a penny. Hmm. So it's not much, but it's constant. And the beauty of that is it's the classic tortoise and hare. If you take a small spacecraft and you put a sail in it or you use the same volume to put the best rocket and rocket fuel in it that we have, and you have a race and you say, go, the rocket's going to take off and, and leave the sail standing there, but the rocket's going to run out of fuel very quickly, and then it's just going to coast at whatever speed it reached. And the sail will start moving faster and faster and faster from the constant acceleration, and in a few weeks or months, we'll pass the rocket and, and leave it in our, in our dust. How big will this sail be when you get it open? Well, it's about 925 square feet. And uh, to put that in perspective, it's about the length of a school bus on each side. And the sail uh, looks like a, um, a thin piece of aluminum foil. It's actually thinner than that. It's uh, thinner than your hair. Huh. It's two and a half microns thick, covered with aluminum, so it's shiny. And it, uh, it's pretty big, almost 1,000 square feet. And, and in fact, uh, we just finished testing the next generation sail, which is substantially larger. And when it flies in a few years, it'll be over 17,000 square feet. So we're, we're, we're working on that next generation sail, even as this one takes to flight. It sounds like an enormously difficult engineering project to get that much material open and serving as a sail. The bigger it gets, do you have more complicated engineering problems to solve? Actually, most of the work went into this first one. And uh, once we figured out how to do it with 1,000 square feet, it was, it was primarily just finding lighter weight materials. For mm. instance, the, the booms, right? These sails have to be extended by some kind of boom that deploys. And on NEA Scout, Near Earth Asteroid Scout, if you uh, take a tape measure out of your drawer at home, and you, you extend that tape measure, it's kind of a, it's a metal that as you pull it out, it becomes rigid. And that's how the booms work that support the, the lightweight sail material. And for Near-Earth Asteroid Scout, when we designed it, the state-of-the-art for booms was a lightweight metal. But since then, these carbon composites have come a long, long way uh, for space application, and they're much lighter weight. And what's enabled us to build the much larger sail is, is basically the same design each boom, uh, of which there are four, because it, it deploys out in, in quadrants, is 100 feet long. Mm. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. But it, the team did a fantastic job, and uh, there were no glitches, really. Everything is coming off pretty, pretty well. It's, it's just amazing. You're going to go out there, check out the asteroid, and get some scientific data, but your sights are set on a far bigger mission. At some point... You're going to turn this into a trip 
to our closest neighbors among the stars of what would be Proxima Centauri or Alpha Centauri and, and take a look at their planets? Well, that's, that's my vision. I don't know that I'll be, long, I'll be living long enough to actually see that happen. <laughs> Uh, but but really, uh, that's that's my vision. When, uh, working at, I have to give a caveat here. Uh, we've been talking about my work at NASA, and I do work for NASA. But when I start talking about my vision for where we want to go in future centuries, I'm really speaking for myself, not for the agency, because NASA doesn't have any plans to go to Proxima Centauri right, uh, anytime right. soon. So I have to make that clear to anyone's listening. But no, that's my vision. That's my dream. I I started reading science fiction when I was in elementary school, and read some pretty amazing stories about uh, interstellar travel using light sails, solar sails, laser-driven sails uh, when I was in high school and college. Uh, kept me going in my physics studies. And in my career, about 20 years ago, I was offered the opportunity to start working on solar sails for much nearer-term missions. But what really motivates me is that I think these are the first steps to the stars and that it'll be a, a technological descendant of the sail that launches on Artemis One that will eventually send our first robotic probe by Proxima Centauri. So that, that's what excites me about what we're doing. It's, it's good stuff in the near term, but uh, I'm dreaming. <laughs> Although you're talking about a star that's, I believe, our nearest neighbor, it still takes, what, about four and a half years for light to reach us from that star? It does. Uh, and, and in fact, one of the things I find when I, I talk to, to people, and, and I have to actually put this in context for myself or I don't really get it, these distances are just almost incomprehensible. You know, it's in the tens of trillions of miles. What, is, what does that mean, right? Yeah. Uh, so scientists use light years, which is it takes four years for light traveling at 186,000 miles per second. But I don't have an experiential basis to even know what that means, other than it's pretty darn fast, right? <laughs> right. So we have to rely on those numbers. And uh, when, when you look at it, nature doesn't give us very many options for traveling to the stars in a realistic amount of time. Uh, but they give us some. We may not know how to engineer them yet, but you know we, we know it's going to be physically possible. And, and solar sails and eventually their cousins, laser-driven light sails, are, are one option to cover that vast distance. How long would such a trip take? Well, uh, in talking about the, the travel time using a sail, it really depends on how you build the sail. There are two different schools of thought. Uh, the approach I've always considered is to build an extremely large sail. Um, think a sail that might be a square mile, not hmm. a, you know a square school bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, right. Deployed very, very close to the sun where the sunlight intensity is very, very high. And the sail material is, is 10 to 25 times lighter than the sail we're flying on near Earth Asteroid Scout. In theory, that sail could carry a robotic uh, uh, spacecraft to do science at another star in a few hundred years, several hundred years. It still might be you know, a three, 400 year trip. Um, but considering that the best rocket technology can do, which is exemplified, for instance, by the Voyager spacecraft, um, going that same distance instead of 500 years, they're going to take 70,000 years. So um, I, I don't want to wait on that. <laughs> um, and, and when we look at human's history scale, we have history going back hundreds of years. I mean, the great cathedrals of Europe, some of them took 300 years to build. Mm. So we've had projects that take hundreds of years, and that doesn't scare me. Um, there, there is another school of thought, though, that instead of relying on sunlight, what you should do is big lasers. Uh, we're advancing high-energy lasers. They emit photons. C can we do something with that? 
And there are, there are people doing research today, not a part of any program I'm, I'm working on, but where you might build a smaller sail. And instead of just relying on sunlight, you, you develop lasers that are 100 or 1,000 times more powerful than we have today and accelerate them extreme, accelerate that small sail to, say, 10% the speed of light so that you can make the voyage to Proxima Centauri in 40 to 50 years instead of 500 years. And would the laser be on the ship or would the laser be on Earth? I think you'd put it out in space. Uh, you'd probably put it on a spacecraft orbiting the sun, or you might have two or three of them on spacecraft orbiting the sun, so that there's always one in line of sight with the sailcraft as it's accelerating out of the solar system. First, I suppose you'll have robots examining exoplanets. But eventually, if you're talking about people going there, there's this question which you must have thought about. How do you deal with the fact that it would be generations later that someone would arrive on another planet? Well, I think there's a, there's a huge ethical question there that has to be addressed. Uh, and, there, and again, I'm one of these people that tries to look at both sides of issues, which today is, I, I think, fairly rare. But yeah. um, I, you have on one hand the people who sign up, they're, they're signing up for the voyage, but are their children signing up for the voyage? And their children and their children's children and on and on for generations. On and on. And, and the way I came to reconcile that is I did not ask to be born of the parents I was born to in this little town in East Kentucky. Um, I consider myself very grateful to have been born to them and, and born there and born in this country. But I don't think we have any choice as to where we're born. And, and so one side of me seems to think that uh, it would be really ethically not much different for these folks to be born on the ship because um, some of my ancestors were probably born on a ship crossing the ocean, right? So I, I, I don't know. I, I, then again, do we have a right to, to condemn them to a life of what would be a lot of hardship aboard that craft? So I, th I think you're right. I think there's an ethical dilemma there that we'd have to work through. Yeah, it really seems to me that it's not only the people who arrive at the destination— it's the ones who were born into a life that will eventually end before ever getting to the destination. And it seems to me, no matter how sophisticated the project is, they're going to live a life that is, to some extent, earthless. They won't have the same exposure to nature that we have and feel entitled to. Will they even know what nature is the way we know what nature is? We don't. Sometimes we don't seem to know what nature is well enough. <laughs> well, they may not, and I agree with you. I think that is a concern and something we'd have to have to talk about because um, you know making decisions for for people who aren't even born it would be extremely difficult. But but one thing, I, as a physicist, I tend to think mechanical systems and engineering. I consulted with some biologists uh, in, in writing the, my book, A Traveler's Guide to the Stars, and other kind of science fiction-y stuff that I write in addition to pop science. And one thing that I, I tend to think is that physics was, you know, the 20th century. Biology is the 21st century. And by the time we're ready to undertake these voyages, who knows what engineering miracles in biology to the human body, to extending life, to improving quality of life, maybe even to allowing people to go into some kind of sleep or slumber for the voyage, those things might become a reality by the time we're ready to build spaceships to go take this. So some of the concerns you and I have where I don't know that I would want to go jump on this ship and spend the rest of my life in a can, 
uh, going, <laughs> going to another star, let alone maybe even going to Mars. A three-year right. round trip sounds unappealing to me right now. Right. Who knows if I had a lifespan of 300 years and could sleep, you know, two-thirds of the voyage, maybe I would do it. I don't know. It's a vivid prospect that you present, and it, it raises all kinds of questions in my mind. I'm wondering about venturing to a planet where we can't be sure that evolution has produced the same kind of nature that we've experienced here. Would it be toxic to us? I'm not even talking about finding other intelligent beings, which we can't be sure if we did find them would be any friendlier to us than the Europeans were to the uh, Native Americans. What, what have you thought about that? Well, I think the likelihood of finding another Earth is really, really, really low, uh, especially one that's very close. And so wherever we eventually go, and I, I'm hoping that we will have you know, scouted it out with robots first to learn enough about what the destination is to know what we might have to do to begin uh, terraforming, changing the planet, uh, to be suitable for life. And, and there again lies an ethical dilemma. If, if it's a dead world and there's no ecosystem, nothing living there, I think modifying it to accommodate Earth life is, is fine because we're not destroying any, any environment. But if we go and find an exoplanet where there's already mm. life of some kind, I would advocate that we don't go there because we just maybe just go there to study it but never look at it as a place to settle or to inhabit because uh, life has got to be rare, and that would be a rare, uh, that's a real scientific opportunity to study other life that developed independently or has matured independently, and we wouldn't want to mess it up. So, so I would advocate we, we have some kind of a Star Trek Prime Directive, perhaps, that uh, tells us if, if we find another world that has life, we can study it, but we don't ever go try to live there or modify it. And if we find a world that's in the habitable zone, just the right temperature where we might survive and there's no life, then, you know, I, I don't see that there's a problem with trying to make it livable at that point. With that being said, I get the impression from what I've read of your work that you feel it's morally acceptable, even morally attractive, to get our species out further into the universe. Is that true? And, and if so, why? Well, I, I do believe that's true. And all I have to do is go out on my deck here in Alabama and the beautiful green trees, the leaves haven't fallen off yet. <laughs> um, we, we still have, I mean, nature's just beautiful. The squirrels, the, the blades of grass, the garden we have on the deck. And then I look at, at human life in particular, and despite some of the terrible things we do or have done, the love that I feel for my wife, my children, uh, the feeling I get when I hear Beethoven, I mean, those are all to me morally good things. They're in the plus column. And those are worth protecting and preserving and spreading beyond our home. And as um, I think it was Arthur C. Clarke or one of the other early science fiction writers said, you know, the earth is the, 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 the basket with which, you know, in which we grew up. And we need to go find other baskets to put our eggs in and not just this one. Because we know from geologic history that there have been huge catastrophes here on the planet that have endangered life in general. And uh, we may be doing things that engender life in, in specific right now with some of our environmental issues that I think we have to get our arms around and fix. And I'm certain we will before we go to the stars. But life is too precious and intelligent life is too precious to leave it all in one place. And, and I think we really need to spread it far and wide, as long as we do it in a way that respects other life if we find it. That's what I wonder, actually. You're reading my mind because I'm wondering 
if we're going to be able to spread what we know of as human life to other parts of the universe, will we be able to do it after a time that we've conquered our own ability to destroy things? I, I unfortunately believe we're always going to be human. And (laughs) even if we genetically modify ourselves. And so I think our penchant for violence, uh, while I don't like it, I think it's a part of human nature. We have to learn how to control that part of our nature. And I think uh, just looking at the advances of the last 50 years in uh, lifting people out of abject poverty and quality and health and life, for humans, has there's never been a better time in history to be a human being on planet Earth, really. Um, now, I can't say that about some of the things we've done to other species on the planet, but we're aware of it, and we're taking proactive steps now, finally, uh, to, to do more to protect it. And I just have to look no further than the Clean Air Act. I grew up in East Kentucky in the 60s, and the air was polluted with coal from the fire, the coal plants and the steel mills and, and everything else. And now it's not. Uh, we don't have rivers catching fire here anymore. I, I think we, we've made a lot of progress. We have a long way to go, but, but I think we'll get through it. I, I, I believe in people doing the right thing. When we come back from our break, Les Johnson tells me how both reading and writing science fiction has made him optimistic about the future. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Les Johnson. Tell me about your the inspiration you seem to have got from science fiction, and you seem to be continuing in that vein and contributing your own science fiction. Is it to supply more inspiration to younger people? Oh, absolutely. Well, and, and in fact, I've reached that point in my career uh, where I've, I've, I'm doing space missions, I'm working on some amazing technologies, and I'm mentoring young people at NASA. I'm also working with interns at uh, my alma mater, uh, Transylvania University in Kentucky, in creative writing. And I'm, I'm trying to start paying back to that next generation. 
But but one thing that that I don't like in our culture right now is is this negativism about the future. Uh, dystopian fiction seems to be the norm, and. Uh, the, the fiction that I read when I was growing up and in my formative years and even early adult years was read by members of the greatest was written by members of the greatest generation. They conquered a depression. They saved the world from fascism during World War II. They saved us from communism in the Cold War. They knew that big challenges could be overcome and the world could be a better place. And I don't believe the challenges we're facing now are as bad as what they overcame. And so I, uh, in, in the fiction that I write, uh, for instance, Saving Proxima, an, an interstellar you know, voyage and first contact story, you're not going to find a negative downbeat ending. Uh, there will be challenges. Humans will be humans who will do vile things. But people can rise to that challenge, and we can make tomorrow better. And... Um, I firmly believe that. So in my writing, both my nonfiction as well as my fiction, I am an optimistic person, and I hope that comes across because I think we can have hope and we should have hope for a better future. It does come across. And I'm thinking of your your answer where you, I think it was in a job interview, you were asked to describe in one paragraph what your own personal aspirations were. Tell me about that. Yeah, I sure can. Um, th- that was part of my day job at NASA. We were uh, in kind of a management training because when you run a project, I may not be a, a manager of a staff of people, but I'm managing engineers and scientists to work toward a common goal. And one of the things they asked us to do in this workshop was to, uh, to, to write down what our professional goal, what do we want to accomplish in our career? And I, I respect a lot of folks that have different views of what they want to do in their career and make of their professional life. But for me, when I was asked to, to retro, retrospectively consider that, my answer was this, and, and that is that when the first uh, settlement, a successful settlement on a planet circling another star, when the historians there are writing the books of their history of how that came to be, that my work on solar sails or other things that I've worked on in my professional career be at least a footnote in that history book. I don't need a paragraph. I don't need a chapter. (laughs) I'll be happy with a little endnote, asterisk, or footnote that references something I did. And that's my goal. I won't see it in my lifetime, but I'm hoping one of my descendants will look back and say, yeah, that was my great, 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 great grandfather who, who contributed to this happening. Your very footnote would be an indication that your dream has more than come true. I'm optimistic. I think it'll be written. Now, whether I'm a footnote in it or not, I don't know. (laughs) But I think it'll be written. (laughs) Your ability and your interest in communicating science, whether it's through science fiction or articles and books about the science itself of our day, how do you decide what level to come in on, what angle to come in on? How do you decide how technical you are able to be? Well, if it depends on the audience. I have edited technical books for my peers, and that's a whole different level. But for, for the general public, I, I try to gauge it for, for what I think I would have understood when I was in high school. Um, I, I don't want to go into a lot of uh, college-level physics. If I, if I can't explain it 
my mother's no longer with me, but if I were unable to explain it at a level where my mother, who never went to college, uh, which is fine, but she, you know, she didn't take physics, right? Um, if I can't explain it at a level that she can understand it, she can't be excited about it, right? And, and I want people to understand what the possibilities are. So when I write my books, people who have the background, I think they'll get something out of it too, or at least they can find some references to go, to go dig into it deeper. But who I want to reach are the people who may not be working in the scientific fields, but are the people who are the taxpayers that pay for this research, the people who advocate for this kind of work with their politicians, through their advocacy groups, and people who are raising kids. Uh, again, I go back to this, 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 this negativism that seems to permeate the culture. And one of the things I've gotten is feedback from some of my books, who, from people who are just enjoying them for the pleasure of reading. They, they, they comment on the same thing you do, that sense of optimism. And they end up you know, recommending the books to, to other people because people are hungry for that now, I think. Realistic optimism. I try not to wear rose-colored glasses. Uh, in the books, I, I try to portray what the real challenges are going to be. And, and they're going to be tough. Interstellar travel will be one of the hardest things this species ever attempts to do. But nature says it's possible. So if we decide we want to do it, we will someday be able to do it. What do you think will make us decide to do it? How will we get, as a, as a group, as a nation or as a constellation of nations, how will we get the optimism and the desire that you have? I think it's going to go, will come with time. I, I don't think we're going to leap from an earthbound 21st century technology to an interstellar travel. I think we're going to see uh, the human species uh, expand beyond Earth. And I think we're seeing the beginnings of this now with the, the new space age that, that we're in the middle of, with a lower cost launch, people talking about building private space stations, finally going back to the moon, those kinds of things. Um, a civilization that has settlements on the planets in its solar system that is mining asteroids to supply the needs of those uh, settlements is beaming energy from the sun down from space uh, or to, to other space habitats. I think they are going to view the next logical step to be traveling to another star. It will be as logical to them as it was to our ancestors, not just those of us from European descent, but the Polynesians when they set out in their boats and settled the islands of the South Pacific. Um, it was the next logical step for, for where they needed to go and expand, and they did it. And so as we become a civilization in our solar system, I think that'll be the next logical step. We always do seem to want to go somewhere from the very beginning, so it may not be such a hard sell. When it's within, almost within reach, People might be saying, look how close we are to exploring that out there. Certainly the sky has fascinated people since there have been people. You, you've hit on something that I think uh, is, is, a, is an unfortunate side effect of our modern age. Light pollution and cell phones. Mm. Um, if people would put down their cell phone on a good clear night and go where they can see the sky... And they can look up and not just see the few brightest planets, but they can see the Milky Way in all of its glory. I, I think two things would happen. I think the support for space exploration would immediately increase. And I think the world's churches would be more full with people asking some of those questions about what's out there and who am I and what's my place in the universe. And, and quite frankly, I think we could do with a little of both of that. You mentioned something a minute ago that I've, I've been wondering about. I've heard you say it before, that asteroids 
could be mined. Mined for what? What would we get out of what? What would a company want to invest in mining an asteroid for? Well, it, it depends. Um, the, the, first off, if we are going to have um, settlements and, explore, and, and laboratories, sort of like in Antarctica, but on the moon, they will have to be frequently resupplied from Earth just to be sustained. I would build into that uh, the opportunity to pay people commercially to deliver water, for example. Uh, we know that there's water ice uh, in the lunar south pole in some of the craters. There's, there are uh, comets, water-rich asteroids out there in space, and it might be cheaper to bring water from one of those locations than it would be to lift it out of the gravity well of the Earth, take it across and lower it back down to the moon. And that would incentivize a whole industry for mining. And then once you're in space, uh, the, the, the great invention of the last 20 years, in my opinion, is the 3D printer, where you can take raw materials and fashion just about anything you want. Now, right now, they're fairly primitive. They're, they're more advanced than they were, but people are printing rocket engines now with metals. Hmm. So we're, we're advancing that capability. And if you are in space, you can't bring all those spare parts with you. You need raw materials to put into your printer and all of the materials from which the Earth is made, all of them, are out there for the taking in the asteroids circling near the Earth. So if, as we start venturing out with tourists and hotels and scientific expeditions, I think the, uh, the commerce and industry will follow, and the, the ability to use those resources and print the things you need to have a thriving community is going is to come along with that. How long do you think it'll take before people go and search out an exoplanet? And physically go there? I think yeah. that's not for several hundred years in the future at best. I think uh, the robotic probes could happen in, a, in, in less than 100 years mm -hmm. if we had a concerted effort to develop the technologies. But when you start talking about taking um, you know, an, an aircraft carrier-sized thing with, with 1,000 or 2,000 people, that's, that's, that's a whole different level of complication, energy requirements, and complexity. Keeping, keeping our squishy humans alive <laughs> is, uh, is a real challenge compared to a small robotic spacecraft, but it's a, it's a worthy challenge, but I think it'll come later. I, I think it might be several hundred years after. Well, given the thought and work and successes you've had so far, when we finally do that, I get the impression you're going to be more than a footnote. You, you, you at least a chapter. <laughs> well, I'm flattered, but but I'll be happy with that footnote <laughs> wherever I am. <laughs> yeah, that's great. We could go on forever, but the, uh, we're running out of time, and we always end our show with seven quick questions, roughly to do with communication. Are you interested? Sure. What do you wish you really understood? I really wish I understood, I guess, the, the nature of how we came to, to be here and our place in the universe. I mean, the questions I ponder all the time. I'm a Christian, and so I have a, a worldview that believes that, that human beings are special, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't other beings out there in the universe, mm. and, and I think that's part of it. I'd like to know what else is out there, and I wish I understood it. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I ask questions. Um, one of the things that I find is people don't react well to being told they're wrong. But I think that in, a, in an exchange of ideas, if you ask questions of what the basis for that opinion is, you can sometimes 
uh, determine whether they're wrong or whether you yourself are incorrect. <laughs> an, an unimaginable possibility. <laughs> <laughs> it's happened to me. <laughs> it certainly happens to me. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? The strangest question is one I get all the time, and it's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard one to answer because it's one of those, are you still beating your spouse questions? Yeah. Um, and that is, you know, are we using the crashed flying saucer technology, right? Because if you say yes, then I'm not telling the truth. And if I say no, I'm a part of a conspiracy covering it up. And, and so th it's one of those questions you can't answer without people either, you know, giving you this all-knowing nod <laughs> or, or, or you're part of the conspiracy. So uh, it's a difficult question, not necessarily a strange question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Uh, I, I, someone will have to do that with me. Um, I, I'm not real sure because I, I certainly like to gab. I, 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 that's a good question. I don't have a good answer for that one. Let's say you're at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a genuine conversation? Generally, I think people will engage with you when they talk about their favorite subject, which is themselves. <laughs> yes. And, and I think I would engage, who are you, where are you from, you know, what brings you here? And, and it's not an artificial question. I really value hearing people's life stories. I'm, I'm actually writing uh, notes about my history and growing up that I'm going to leave to my kids, not necessarily because my kids might be interested, but maybe my grandchildren, because I don't have many notes uh, of that kind that came from my grandparents or my great-grandparents. And, and I'm just fascinated by people's stories and how they ended up where they are, how they found their spouse, how they found their job. And so when I, when I start a conversation with somebody, I really want to know who they are. And, and people like to talk about that. You know, parenthetically, you remind me that I'm always struck by the fact that politicians and many others stop being interested in humanity after grandchildren or before grandparents. And some of the work that we've been talking about will involve great, 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 on and on. Do you think we'll get a stronger sense by contemplating the things we've been talking about? Will we get a stronger sense of those who come after us? I hope so, but, but I think what I've found is that everyone is different in what their interests are, and, and every family, almost every family has the family historian or the person who tries to preserve those family stories. Um, so for me, I'll be happy if, we, if I just reach in that level some fraction of the population because not everybody's interested in that, and I understand and respect that. I just, I don't like it. I think I can't imagine not being curious about such things or not caring about that future generation. But I understand it. But I think there'll be enough people that do get it that it'll carry on. Next to last question, what gives you confidence? Looking back at what people who, um, oh, wow, on all ends of the spectrum, people who have not been as blessed as I have been in my life with education and family, achieving great things, overcoming obstacles uh, that they've had to overcome to, to be successful at whatever they try to do, whether it be their personal life, their professional life, or otherwise. It gives me confidence that I can do things that are hard, and it gives me confidence that other people can do more than they think they can do. Uh, because throughout history, people have risen to that challenge, and, and it just, that, that's, that's what gives me confidence. Okay, last question, and we've been touching on this all during our conversation. What book changed your life? Well, I would undoubtedly say the Bible. And as I read it more and more and more, 
uh, the, the more humbled I am and the more I realize how far I have to go to be the kind of person that uh, cares truly about other people and uh, can, can show that in, in my life. So I would have to say the Bible. Les, this has been such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm a big fan. Thank you. Thanks so much. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Les Johnson works at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, where he's the principal investigator of NASA's first two interplanetary solar sail space missions. The first of these, the NEA Scout spacecraft launched on the Artemis I rocket last month, has yet to be in radio contact with mission control. Les is also the author of many books, both fiction and nonfiction, and his latest is The Traveler's Guide to the Stars. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Alison Gopnik. She's a renowned expert on how babies learn about the world through curiosity and exploration. And she's now collaborating with artificial intelligence researchers to make AI systems more like children. The great reason why we've seen so many advances in AI is if you just let the machine give it the data and just say, okay, this is a cat, this is a dog, this is a cat, this is a dog, and I'm going to tell you, are you, were you right or were you wrong? It turns out that those pretty simple learning techniques can end up giving you systems that are quite powerful. But the problem is that those systems aren't very good at generalizing. They're not very good at applying what they know to something new. Um, something I've said is it's kind of like these poor little AIs have super helicopter parents. So getting them to be more like children, getting them to explore, getting them to try and figure things out for themselves um, actually really does seem to make them better. Alison Gopnik, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waverhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home.
It's time to take your career to the next level with over 150 graduate degree programs. The Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.